0: Welcome to the Sustainability Agenda podcast. My name is Fregel Barron. Every week, I speak to leading sustainability thinkers and practitioners, scientists, economists, NGOs, business leaders, and investors. We discuss the sustainability imperative, the key challenges, the latest thinking, and what's working in sustainability, resilience, and regeneration. The Environmental Justice Foundation is an NGO working to protect environmental security as a basic human right. Using powerful films and photography alongside hard-hitting investigations, EJF exposes environmental destruction and ensuing threats to human rights, telling the stories of those at the front lines. EJF takes local fights to the very heart of governments and businesses across the world to secure lasting global change. By providing training for grassroots campaigners, EGF also helps to give a voice to the next generation of environmental defenders, strengthening global action to protect people, wildlife and our shared planet. You can find out more at ejfoundation.org. I'm very pleased today to welcome Katarina Pistor to the podcast. Caterina is Professor of Comparative Law and Director of the Center on Global Legal Transformation at Columbia Law School. Her most recent book is The Code of Capital, which explores the various ways that debt, complex financial products and other assets are coded to protect and reproduce private wealth, an analysis which she extends to environmental financial assets in this interview. Thank you very much, Katharina, for joining me today on the Sustainability Agenda podcast.
1: Uh, It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me.
0: So um, yes, lots to talk about. Such fascinating work you're doing, and uh, I'd like to talk about your book as well. Um, but uh, can you maybe just introduce yourself? Talk a little bit about tell us a little bit about your background and what you're what you do, Katharina.
1: Sure. So um, I'm a law professor at Columbia Law School. I'm originally from Germany, and actually I did study law in Germany. Um, Law doesn't always move well because you're trained in a particular legal system, but the U.S. is a little bit more flexible than other countries might be. And so I've been teaching at Columbia Law School for 20 years. Um, I'm mostly teaching in the areas of corporate law and finance. I also teach law and development. So I've always been interested in how law and legal institutions relate to economic development. development broadly defined. I spent a lot of years in the 1990s thinking about the transformation of the former socialist world. And I think since the global crisis of 2008, I've been thinking about the transformation of the capitalist world.
0: Very good. Very interesting. And um, your, your uh, w- one of your concerns, I guess, and what you talk about in the book is, is, is the relationship, I suppose, between um, financial capitalism per se and the creation of financial assets and inequality and, and, and the history of that and, and how, how that uh, plays out?
1: Yes. So, um, you know, I think my, my recent research really started with a research project on, on the financial system where I tried to unpack what really makes the financial system tick and wrote a paper which I called A Legal Theory of Finance, which basically makes the point that our uh, financial system really is legally coded. Um, We might have small spot markets where people exchange commitments and, and debt contracts and mutually monitor whether they fulfill their obligations, but you can't scale such systems unless you have a legal system because the state backs with its powers the private commitments that people make to one another. So the basic idea of that project was to say, actually this financial system that just crashed in 2008 or so, Um, was legally defined and legally bound. And actually, people who enter into financial contracts um, bind themselves to make certain uh, payments, um, etc. And they make this under conditions of uncertainty. We don't know what the future holds. And if the future turns out to be different from our assumptions, um, we might have bound ourselves to something that we cannot fulfill. And if too many people have bound themselves to something they cannot fulfill, the system will crash. So that that was basically the idea um, of that paper. And when I looked at the legal institutions that are used for creating financial assets. Every financial asset is an IOU. It's a legal contract dressed up with property rights and collateral and channeled through trusts and corporations. It's all legal. Um, So when you look at these institutions, then you also see actually they are much older than our global system of financial capitalism. They were around much longer, Uh, but we have repurposed them for finance. And that's the transformation that we've seen since the 1970s or 1960s already on, on a larger scale. And since the globalization of the financial system, really, it was turbocharged
0: that's very interesting because can you like again just very briefly i would we'll come back to this in just at the beginning just to what is the connection between do you think this I mean, your book is called the code of capital how the law creates wealth and inequality but the, these this financialization i suppose you could call it um uh gives rise to inequality uh, it's a, a book with a very uh, in-depth analysis and detail so uh, but uh, a, a key idea at the heart of that just Make that connection.
1: Yeah, the the basic idea is that without uh, the backing of the legal system, which is the social resource, right? We all play by certain rules. We have mechanisms in play, how we make laws and enforce laws and what courts should do. So, this is a social resource. Without that social resource, private parties could not make wealth. Because they depend on that. You have to have a property right. You have to have a collateral. You have to have an enforceable contract. And so they're using private law institutions that are fairly malleable, that you can, you know, des- redesign, repurpose and create new kind of things. Lawyers know how to do that. And through using these legal institutions, you make your wealth. You can be lucky and sometimes strike a fortune and make some better money, but you are usually also subject to business cycles, you're subject to tax obligations, you're subject to other things, but you can insulate yourself from that through the law. And so the mechanism that works for capitalism in general, as I describe in the books, it's worked already for the landed elites in the 17th and 18th century, but we just use the same institutions in the 20th and 21st century to to dress up uh, financial commitments as capital. All. And, and that's, that's the source of private wealth.
0: Right, right. And uh, at the heart of this, I suppose, this is an interesting question. Can we do it in another way? Are there other ways of doing it? Maybe that'll be a topic kind of rumbling along as we uh, talk here. Well, but, well I, do I, what? I, it,
1: do what? Become rich or or, <laughs> or organize economies?
0: <laughs> no, I, I guess it's this idea of a socially useful legal system, as it were, in our correspondence, I, I emailed you uh, uh, some reference from a law firm talking about biodiversity and the key solution being to monetize and create innovative finances and structures for investors. And I think you said, well, um, that's that makes sense within total sets within the system we've created. And I suppose the question is, are there other possibilities? Can we create other kinds of systems and what would need to happen? And how would we do that? And I ask that with a particular question in mind, because I guess with COP26 coming up, we have the formalization of uh, various kinds of carbon markets and uh, also natural capital uh, proceeding at, with tremendous momentum. And I, I'm just wondering, a very big question I know, but what how we might create a system that would work better, be more socially, environmentally and more equitable legally.
1: Yeah, so I think that's a really a fundamental question. So let me just say first on the strategies that whether these are hedge funds or, um, or other investors uh, would prefer, of course, what they would prefer is to make sure that they can uh, invest in a new type of asset class and make the same returns that they've always made. And so the question is whether it's possible to have a risk-free, you know, um, uh, almost relatively certain financial return on new types of assets such as green assets. So that's what they would, you know, go for. And that's what they are. Going for some, you know, hedge funds also say, "Well, we can still invest in in brown tech, uh, um, assets because they're just, you know, just they just give us the returns, and maybe we make enough returns to then reinvest in green assets because we're not so certain about them." So that's that's going on right now. The underlying mechanism is always the same, the same that I describe in the book, which is you make a comp a complex um, system legible by standardizing certain things, by categorizing it, by creating sort of new types of asset classes, by disclosing, and ideally by having some security by the state that might actually say we guarantee this or we certainly back this with our, our legal system. So that you need as well. And what we're seeing right now is really an attempt to capitalize, to assetize nature and to capitalize on nature so that um, investors can basically shift their portfolio, reallocate their portfolio make their money. Um, and you know, I think it's the same thing that we've seen over and over and over again, but we've also seen over and over and over again that it works in a similar way. You skim the cream of the milk, and if things go wrong, you leave it to the socialization of costs. Um, we've seen this in the financial crisis of 2008, uh, maybe not as stark in the COVID crisis where governments went in and also made sure that... Uh, weaker and poorer people had um, some 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 government larges as well. Not only those who had made all the money beforehand. The problem with the climate change really is that uh, we don't have. Um, we can't really play these kind of games when we are dealing with a system like nature, which is bounded and which will not simply, you know, relax its natural constraints to accommodate capital again, as central banks and governments have done for centuries. Um, and so the question is, will it work? And my fear is that it won't. And um, and I think there are lots of reasons to believe that it cannot work with this in the system because the structure is that you try to make gains and shift the risks to others. That's what capitalists have always done. Um, but we are all sitting in the same boat. Um, so the question is, how do we deal with this? You shouldn't hedge like a single sailor in a boat. We have to hedge the boat because we're all sitting in the same boat. And that, of course, requires that we are not relying on the same individualized property rights, but that we coordinate our um, uh, risk-taking and we're also coordinate somehow who's bearing the loss. Nobody wants to bear the loss, but it's going to be loss intensive. And we have to think about how to share loss. Now, some people will call this socialist, but it has to be coordinated and has to be decided together. And we have to get people on board. Otherwise, they will just make wrong decisions and rebel against this. And then I don't think we will get the result that we need to make this planet um, inhabitable um, in the foreseeable future.
0: Well, a lot of a lot of ideas in there, and I'd like to come back to some of them, very important ideas. I, I, just uh, very quickly, you talked about socializing losses. Is that a political perspective, or does that come from your analysis of uh, financial uh, and legal frameworks, the way the assets are created?
1: So I think it does come from this analysis, not just politics, because you can you can you know when you look at uh, several centuries of capitalism, you can see that uh, we have created institutions that allow private um, uh, individuals and 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 corporations whom. We gave the status of legal persons as well to be protected from losses. We create limited liability for shareholders so they can take risk without having to take all the losses. So there are lots of legal institutions that we have created that actually incentivize investments into an unknown and an and uncertain future and thereby um, but th- that implies that we say you can do this and you're not responsible for all the losses then you allow you know corporations to create their own corporations so they can you know basically have all these subsidiaries and they can shift the most risky undertakings to a subsidiary if it goes under it goes under it's bankrupt but the Parent company is still there, and the investors are still making money. So I think the legal system itself has um, very much facilitated the the uh, reaping of private gains. That's what it's all about, and it's all, how it's always been justified. But by implication, also meant that um, if the shareholders don't take liability, who does? Who does? The environment, other people, the you know the taxpayers, the central bank with its monetary authorities—they do
0: that's very very interesting and uh I, I certainly want to go into that in in more in more depth uh really powerful uh, ideas um now uh, I, I i was just looking uh were talking my climate change i was just looking online before we spoke it was a, an economist conference of sustainability uh smiling you know senior executives from many of the most powerful companies in the world keynote address from bill gates all lining up somehow to save the world now uh, i you know clearly uh it, it's a good thing i suppose that that sustainability uh, and climate are what, what, what they call a C suite issue, but I'm, I'm just wondering how much can corporations actually do in terms of the, the way they're structured legally? And this, I, this idea, this, this uh, more than idea, legal uh, reality, I guess. But uh, you can discuss the degree to which it is, you know, legally Im- embedded. This idea about corporations' duty to maximize uh, returns to shareholders. Uh, you know what the law is uh how, how it's interpreted i mean you talk in your book about uh two broad sets of law uh around the world the, the english law and then the, the the kind of securities and financial law coming out of uh new york and, and delaware and so forth uh so that would that that is where i guess this idea of of um shareholder produce, uh, you know producer responsibility is
1: yeah, so, um, you know, I think one could structure corporations differently. And some countries have tried to do that um, uh, to some effect as well. Um, so I think that the, in, in terms of the different legal systems that we have out there, the two, the major divide lies between the common law system, that's English law, and um, all the offshore Um, 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 offsprings of English law, the former colonies, right, from North America, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, um, uh, English-speaking Africa. So you just, you know, look at the imperial map and you know where the common law is or where the civil law, mostly French and Spanish, is. Um, uh, The common law has always been very amenable to private attorneys refashioning new assets and interest from the law that was around and the judges approving that. Just also keep in mind that in the common law, the judges are uh, drafted from, uh, from the pra- practicing bar. Right? So the you practice for a couple of decades, and if you're a successful attorney, you become a judge. In the civil law system, you become a judge after you graduate from law school. So you have a very different, much more bureaucratic mindset. Um, and in the civil law system, I think there's always been greater skepticism about what private parties might do with the law. And so there has been more policing. Um, to give you just one example, it's a well-known one. Of course, Germany introduced co-determination in 1976. and uh, And England, of course, refused to have that incorporated into the European law, because they thought that was too socialist. We can have a debate about whether this works or not, but certainly we've created more voice for other constituencies um, in the the corporate world uh, in that that fashion. And in the 1970s already, we've had a debate, and it's coming back now, is whether other interests should be um represented on a board of a corporation like you know representatives of ngos that are you know for environmental stuff whether it works or not but i want to come back to the point um that uh, you made about um can Companies really just do what they want to do.
0: Sorry, it's not so much not so much can they do what they want to do, but to what extent are they bound by this responsibility to, to maximize shareholders' return? Is it legally operative? And yeah,
1: you know n- none of this none of this about shareholder value Maximization is written in statutory law. It's case law, uh, mostly in the state of Delaware. And many of the American corporations and quite a few international ones are incorporated in Delaware. And and in, in England, there's not even that much um, litigation. There's sort of the maxime that shareholder value maximization should trump everything. But in the United States, this really came about as sort of a standard uh, case law only during the big takeover waves of the 1980s. It started in the 1970s. There's an earlier decision, Dodge v. Ford, where the court said, um, you know, that you can't can't deny shareholders uh, dividends, right? But that's one thing. It's a different thing to say shareholders always trump. And that's something that has evolved only um, in the law of the 1980s. So, you know, you just take a precedent and change it again, you, you could. It's just nothing that is um, um, written in stone. We, we could... Change that, and you could also ha- have a, a statutory provision that says actually um, they're equal interests of other stakeholders. In fact, in the United States, there are uh, many, many states have already adopted new statutes for what they call public benefit corporation. So an ordinary corporation can declare itself to be a public benefit corporation and say we actually also pursue environmental protection they must declare this they must declare how they will protect it and they must give shareholders who have bought into their companies under different conditions an option to get out but once they have done that they can actually say it's no longer just shareholder value maximization we can do something else so that's happening already it's not undoable law is you know law is a social resource we can change it it's nothing written in stone it's not a natural law it's a social law
0: Yes, I and to what extent do you think that's possible? Do you think that's likely? You mentioned the law is malleable. I mean, one of the ideas in in your book is, you know, just how much, uh, I guess, you know, uh, the, the malleability of the law and you know corporate lawyers and you know you you mentioned uh, you know lawyers that you 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 spoken to that talked about you know muting regulatory uh, uh, conditions or or legal clauses and so forth through through the courts. There was a, a recent decision where in Shell, it wasn't in the United States, but in the Netherlands, which didn't seem to draw uh, pay too much attention to uh you know shareholders. They just said, you know, you need to reduce your emissions by 2030 by whatever 40, 45 percent, end of in some respect. What is that uh, do you think a very significant case? Will that play out? And do you feel over the next few years do you see changes coming?
1: So I think it's 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 a significant case because it shows that courts have become more open again um about thinking about who actually has to bear liability for operations. So I think the the shell case was about a subsidiary in Nigeria and the losses it has created. And what happens typically is that the parent company says, oh, we're not liable for that because we also benefit from limited liability, right? So that's what I said earlier. We have created the law. It wasn't designed like that originally, but over time by you know lobbying, by interest groups and legislative change, we've allowed corporations to set up another corporations, right? So they can multiply and they can shift the most risky assets to these operations. And if then something happens, um, claims are mounting environmental damages, other damages, they say, oh, too bad. We'll just take it into bankruptcy, write it off, but we're still around and can help our investors. They made the money, they had no clawbacks, nothing. They just go on to the next project. That's got to stop if we want it to come to terms with climate change, right? So I think the shell case is important. And I hope there will be others that say, actually, uh, the parent bears responsibility for the damages created by a subsidiary. And we will not respect the corporate form if it's abused in this fashion. Courts can do this. They've done this in extreme cases. They can shift the goalposts when they use these kind of mechanisms, it's all in their power as well. But legislators could help. They could also say we do not recognize corporate forms that are just shells—shells shells for shifting liabilities to to the environment or to the rest of the people. Uh, shells that are used to shift um, tax obligations. Shells that are used to shift regulatory obligations. We could do that now. One there's of course it's not um, in the global world. It's not so easy because let's say. England does that. England starts saying we will not recognize corporations that are incorporated. So English corporations can no longer do this kind of risk shifting that they have um, been doing in the past. Of course, many will then say, well, then let's reincorporate in Delaware, right? We can still do it in Delaware. So let's go all to Delaware. And as long as England recognizes Delaware corporations as if they were their own corporations, then you have undermined the legislative intervention that I just described, right? So given that, so this is what we call this area of the law that few people know about, but it's called choice of law, conflict of law, sometimes also called international private law, given that we have expanded the choice of private parties to decide the rules by which they wish to be governed. So if you have enough money and you can pay a good lawyer, you can pick and choose by which rules you want to be governed. You can pick different shoes for, uh, rules for different things. Now, if we all, every one of us, picked and chose our laws by which we want to be governed, we wouldn't have a uh, a way to live peacefully with one another anymore, right? It's just brinkmanship and game, gaming. But we're very close to that, I think, in the in the in the corporate world and the global financial world. And so we have to. In a close some of these loopholes. So again, states would have to say we will recognize foreign corporations only if they comply with certain sets of rules that we think are important. Otherwise, if you're a corporation and let's say you come to Germany and you don't have co-determination, we might, will not recognize you as a um, as a corporation. So you're a partnership, which means automatically that all the shareholders are, are fully liable for all the liabilities of the firm.
0: Yes, but presumably corporations, it's not in their interest. They would, they don't want this kind of thing. And there must be a weight of legal uh, thinking, legal uh, investment, lawyers working to, you know, keep things as, as they are. Do you see that really changing within any kind of meaningful time frame? I and mean, one of the interesting things in your book is, again, over how long a period, such a long period that these yes. laws, you know, were embedded and, and, and changed. We're talking about, you know, uh, quite urgent time frames, whatever way you look at it. You know, we're looking at quite short, I guess, in terms of legal thinking as well. I mean, do you think there's really any likelihood that in Delaware they're going to change these laws?
1: Honestly, of course not. Um, it's not going to happen that easily, especially if Delaware has to do it because Delaware has made um, is you know it's, it's making a lot of money by having all the corporations incorporated in Delaware. They're funding their budget with that, so so they have a disinterest in that, but you know, there are other ways to do that. So, you know, there had been proposals by Senator Warren and and uh, Pani Sanders as well that you create a federal statute for corporations of certain size. And you can say you can incorporate in Delaware or you can incorporate in New York or you create a federal statute, either of those. But if you are above a certain size, these rules will apply to you now. So you would have to get Congress. Now, you know, <laughs> American Congress these days is not an easy thing to work with either, but you would at least have one, uh, stop shopping. Not um, you know, 50 states, different laws. Stop shopping, kind of thing. Um, I, I I would say, however, you know what my mission is here to tell policymakers and tell the world: we have to think much harder about private law. Most people take private law for granted. Don't even think that there's anything in there. They start regulating, they start trying to do taxes. And what I'm saying is actually with a little bit of help by a lawyer, you can actually finagle your way through this maze of regulation and find another way to continue making money as you did in the past. So we have to touch this sacred cow, the private law. And one thing that I've thrown around uh, already two years ago, I've said, well, if we just If we just really want investors to incorporate the risks of their investment, let's just get rid of limited liability. Let them price these assets truly, which basically means we just don't give you this legal subsidy. It is a legal subsidy to say you can invest in whatever. You just make the money. doesn't matter how much externalities it produces. as says, well, if there are externalities, you will have to cough it up. That would send yeah. a strong signal. So if, we, if we're talking about market-based solutions, let's talk about markets. Let's, talk, let's not talk about legal steroids that protect you from the effects of the market.
0: Well, that's very interesting. I was going to mention, you were talking about looking through the corporate form in, in various different ways. But uh, if you look at the tobacco industry, when they were... Uh Held accountable for you know misleading the the public and 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 you know and the health I- impact of smoking, um, huge fines and so forth. But why to what extent were executives themselves held accountable when it comes to questions of uh, should we say uh, foreknowledge in in and uh, misrepresentation in the fossil fuel companies? Are fines enough? No. Should we not be looking at saying actually these are decisions made by individuals knowingly which had terrible health impacts uh, in in so many ways they should bear the full weight of the law.
1: I, I agree with that, but I think we also have to go to the investors, right? They're making the money off it. I mean, these CEOs, have, and the CEOs are bound to, you know, to to what they want, as we discussed earlier. Now we can change both, but I think, yes, there could be much stronger um, repercussions for people who just flout uh, rules that are meant to protect um, a broader swath of the population or the environment, et cetera. I agree with that. But I think we also have to make sure that the investors will have to think about their investments in a different way.
0: We've seen, you know, uh, eye-popping eye uh, sums of money credited with ESG investment. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and 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 now, uh, interestingly enough, the SEC is looking at this, uh, um, maybe even a, a view on that. But your vast sums of money supposedly looking at, you're know, having ESG credentials, as it were, um, you know, what are the investors producer responsibility? And to what extent have they scoped to say, well, it was a good project. It's, you know, and, and it had really good environmental impacts, but actually uh, returns maybe weren't quite so good. Um, how are they legally bound? And uh, is there a direction of travel
1: there? Yeah, the investors are not really legally bound. I think the UK has come out with the stewardship ideas that, that their guidance is basically how investors should incorporate ideas about green investing, et cetera. And they rely then on this labeling, on the ESG indicators or other green indicators. And of course, as everybody Who's in that game knows? Every lawyer knows for sure. Is you can game indicators, right? So the more green assets you have, you know, you can just declare something to be green because there's some kind of funny offsetting with it. Um, just and uh, and 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 that's where they're shifting their portfolio because as long as the government then says it's green and that's fine, and there's some kind of authority that recognizes it, the investors can wash their hands even if it doesn't work out because they just did right what what others had declared to be fine just as they invested in CDOs and other stuff before the, uh, you know, mortgage-backed securities before the global financial crisis and told, um, you know, you know, just uh, threw up their hands when the whole thing crashed. I mean, they got you know triple A rating from the rating agency, so they did all the right thing. Well, you know, this is just all these shields that we have created so that investors don't think about how they're investing. They only think about the bottom line, how much money they can make in the short term, irrespective of the externalities that they create. And that has to be that has to be reversed. They have to incorporate the costs of using their money to invest in certain things and so i think limited liability for me would be one of the first targets and and reducing the options to um, shift your corporations into you know havens of legal regimes that allow you to do this
0: that's very interesting cop 26 is coming up and there's uh, a, a lot of work that's been going on in terms of carbon markets, the sums of money that that uh, various uh, analysts and bodies talk about in terms of, you know, reducing fossil fuel and decarbonizing and so forth, you know, in tens of trillions, 40, 50, 60 trillion, uh, depending on who you look at uh, by 2050. So vast sums of money. And as Daniela Gabor has looked at, this is what she calls the, I think, the Wall Street consensus, the way in which international multilateral banks and so forth are trying to, you know, structure these ways and which private capital can get involved, invest in green assets, as it were, particularly in the global south and so forth, and the way they're they're being structured. So vast sums of money are needed. And, you know, how should we think about structuring that or working that in such a way that, you know, because where's the money going to come from? In part, it will come from private investors, for sure, to the degree to which they are, you know, going to invest the, the sums that we're talking about. But presumably, something needs to change.
1: Well, you know, I think this argument about vast amounts of money are needed to do this. And this is why we need the private sector. It's a little bit of a Faustian bargain, right? Because um, the investors are making money of that. It's not just that they have the money and then they give it in this investment. They're making money as they invest. And so the, the, the what is really happening is that they're trying to get uh, legal subsidies and other protections from the state to reallocate their portfolio so that it doesn't hurt themselves and their investors. And, uh, and and I don't think we will succeed on that because it will hurt at some point. And, uh, and I don't think governments should bail out the private sector just because they made foolish decisions again, as they, they tend to do. Now, what's what's the alternative? I think there are lots of other ideas on the table. Um, one, I think, is uh, it involves the central banks that are also um, in, in participating in markets and they're accepting certain types of assets as collateral when they hand out over their own money, uh, hard currencies, And, uh, you know, brown assets, unfortunately, have played a pretty important role as a safe collateral because it has made such great returns in the past. But I think the ECB certainly and other central banks are rethinking about how they should play into this. I think major um, government and other um, independent institutions that work for the broader public have... a. Big role to play. Here in the United States, ideas have been launched for new kinds of kind of uh, public investment bank um, that actually um, makes sure that they can mobilize some private capital, but that they make the investment decisions and that the returns are shared amongst uh, a broader uh, group of, of, of both public and private investors, not just by the private investors. So I think the model of we make the gain and you take the losses will cannot work if we really want to come to terms with climate change. We have to be a bit more creative in thinking about new institutional arrangements and beyond the classic public-private partnerships, which also are very often designed such that the public takes the risks and the privates take the returns
0: yeah yeah. very interesting as we saw in 2008 and, and, and thereafter you talk about uh, central banks and you know I, I know there's the, there's the network of the greening uh, central banks and forth they're, they're hardly the most accountable of institutions are they? and this question a lot of the multilateral financial institutions, the kinds of decisions that are made, the treaties and so forth they're, um, they're a little bit out of the hands and eyes of the general public.
1: But so are the private actors, right? And they are indirectly relying on the, on the legal subsidies that the states give them or other subsidies. I mean, we just are reading the. Pandora Papers and are realizing how much legal protection private entities have received. Uh, The fossil fuels are getting getting, um, official subsidies from governments uh, left and right without really this being made transparent. So, So yes, I share, of course, the concern that some institutions are not sufficiently accountable, but the private parties are by definition not accountable to the public for what they're doing. And I think that's what has to change. Before that, we can't have a meaningful discussion about that.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. You you mentioned uh, ideas on the table and so forth. What about? Uh, I don't know whether this is some, something that you've you, you, you've written about uh, in particular, but uh, you know, global financial uh, infrastructure, some kind of IMF, something like that, structured with maybe S- environmental SDRs, creating, I suppose, some kind of equivalent of is it modern monetary theory working in a national economy, but creating credit uh, somehow at a global level, at an institutional level, or ideas like that in the air.
1: Um, I have not written about this, and I've—I um, I haven't seen a full plan. One would really have to think this through very carefully. But I think there is the—the the, the kernel of, of truth or importance in this is that, um, you know, money is created, um, you know, by 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 powerful states usually, and the question is to what extent could multilateral institutions replace it or should do that? But certainly, uh, some central banks and some governments, in particular, have much more flexibility to create the kind of funds that are needed also for environmental protection then is admitted. Right? so the debates um, that you know governments have to first find the money to spend it is um, nonsense. If you control your own currency and you can issue that currency to fund certain types of purposes, uh, so we are currently ch- channeling this through the private sector um, mostly, but um, there's no reason really that we have to do this in the future. That it all then boils down, of course, how to make sure that it's done for the right purposes by the right people with enough competence um, and not and, and doesn't give rise to concerns um, of, you know, um, waste and and abuse and corruption and the like.
0: Yes, yes. Now, when it comes to financial innovation, I'm not sure what, what the legitimacy of that term is um, in any case. But um, how would you assess the degree to which, you know, financial innovation has Created value, as it were, has been worthwhile. Um, I mean, I saw some figures after the financial crash, which was very dubious about a lot of the financial uh, uh, innovation. I don't know how that that's been measured and so forth. Um, but I'm just wondering uh, about that. In also in light of this question about the new kinds of financial assets or so the natural capital assets, the carbon assets that will that will emerge somehow in coming years.
1: Yeah, so financial innovation has always been about creating a new asset that bears the least regulatory cost and the highest and creates the highest return for the asset owner, right? So that that's the mechanism. And so if we close one door because we're trying to regulate something, then the lawyers and, and their clients will find a different type of assets that might be coded as capital so that you can get returns, preferably without bearing the full cost of regulation, without obviously violating regulations or other laws because otherwise it doesn't work. So that financial innovation is really legal arbitrage at its core, because that goes back to what I said earlier, the financial system is, is legally coded. It wouldn't exist in this at this scale, at this complexity without the law. And every new innovation is actually a new legal arbitrage um a move to find new types of assets. You know, think about our personal data. Think about um, now the environment. We're taking nature and making it legible so that we can monetize it, we can describe it, and then we can um, uh, and then we can monetize it. that's what it's all about and trade it and make money on that. And if it doesn't work out too bad, right? Hopefully, we have limited liability and we can shift, again, the cost of that to others. So, um, uh, you know, I think I'm not saying that, you know, some, you know, innovation in the, you know, some of the big innovations, for example, to have shares or bonds didn't make sense. It, It did. But whether we still need the kind of Belts and whistles that we attach to corporations in the 19th century, such as limited liability, or whether we still need the maximizing shareholder value as the overarching, or whether these things are now harmful, is something that we should discuss openly today.
0: Yeah, very interesting. And and, I'm kind of uh, quite uh, telling in a way because as as I understand it, the, you know, the development of the first financial assets were coming out of land itself, you know, in in England um, and enclosure and so forth, and now land in a a very real way, uh, you know, becoming a financial asset again. And some of those questions, I guess, which you talk about in your book, this, uh, you know, the argument for the landlords having been there longer and and having created value, as it were, uh, for for them. To get their, their rights, um, this is another question at the heart of this natural capital. You know, is a piece of land, is a tree, what's it worth if it's not adding value somehow? Uh, and those kind of considerations seem, you know, central to some of this you know, natural uh, capital accounting.
1: Yeah, so it's, it's it's you know for to to feed nature into the capitalist process, we need to make it legible in this fashion, right? And so the argument is only that the only value that counts is monetizable value. Right. So we have not monetized environmental damages for several centuries, which is why we have the problem that we have. Right? we have never put this into the accounts of the corporations that produced it and now all of a sudden we're turning around and saying well let's monetize that too so we can make more money it's a kind of a you know it's it's it it just sometimes takes my breath away sort of the um, the idea that you know after um, allowing externalization for so long we're now taking what you have externalized and allow you to invest in this and make money on this again um, so I think that I would um, advocate alternative solutions where we just don't rely on a mechanism that we know exactly how it works. We have been around long enough to know how it works, and it will not voluntarily incorporate losses because that will reduce the gains. And so they will fight that. So the governments will have to create a lot of inducements and incentives, and they will rely on, on that to, to make the money, but they will not want to share the losses. It's, it's a system that we have created.
0: So, can you talk a little bit about that, this uh, excluding losses? How did that develop, this idea?
1: Well as I mentioned before we have things like limited liability we have bankruptcy that makes it easy to for a debtor that went into bankruptcy to come back and start something new we've created everything so it's market compatible it encourages entrepreneurship because we've always we've created this belief especially in this country uh, but also in England to a large extent that um, individual entrepreneurship is sort of the, the the motor for everything that is good for society and somehow we will all benefit from that so we've purposefully created uh, legal mechanisms 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 that allow you uh, to do that and of course they've come to rely on that and most people now think it's completely natural. You have an asset, you invest in it and yeah, if it doesn't work out, um, you just you just try again. The problem is that we're confronting nature that says, actually, you know, this is your planet. <laughs> you know, you, there are not many, not not many more around that you can try that game again, and we're reaching the limits of that planet. So we have to be a bit more creative in thinking about the mechanisms that we need to put in place to make sure that we live here in a more sustainable fashion. And all of us. So something that you also hear is that you know, you know, as long as the human species survives, it's good. It's just fine. Um, the question of course is, you know, who's in the lottery to survive and who's not? Um, and that raises ethical issues.
0: Yeah, no, absolutely. You talk about this as a dominant kind of a way of looking at things that we take for granted. Were there waves of, of other approaches that, that were round, you know, that did include some measure of losses? Were there different ways of thinking about it that, that somehow got crowded out over time?
1: Well, there are lots of different, you know, just even organizational forms. Just think about the partnership where we actually do incorporate yeah. the losses, right? So we have, the corporation has become the standard form for almost anything. But not too long ago, in many jurisdictions, it wasn't possible, for example, for for an an individual entity or legal person to create another legal person was not allowed. In the United States, it was not allowed at all until the end of the 19th century, and, and that a corporation hold shared, held share in other corporations in most states. In Germany, the idea that a corporation could simply individually, just or an individual could set up a, incorpor, uh, a corporation um, uh, was not allowed until the early 1980s, if I get my dates right here, because people feared this abuse. People feared this abuse. If you go back to the early 19th century, I always teach my students in corporations the first day of the Class, the New York corporate statute of 1811 that says you get a corporate charter for 20 years and then you can come yes. and reapply for it. Now, it's, it's a crazy idea, right? If you think about it, but I always ask them to imagine the world had that happened. You get a license for 20 years, and actually, by the way, you cannot have more than $100,000 in capital. So, not minimum capital requirements, but a ceiling. Lots of stuff people have thought about earlier, and we all pushed it aside in the name of a capitalist system that relies exclusively almost on individual uh, profiteering. And I think we're feeling the cost of that system. So we just have to go back in history. And, and you know, there are many, many, many institutional devices that have been cast aside that you could revive and, and think about.
0: And, and ironically, the Wall Street itself used to be uh, structured as a partnership. Correct.
1: Uh, until the 1990s, the big investment banks were all partnerships. Yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Exactly.
0: Can we come back to this question of limited liability? Um, you talked about this question of reducing charter times or not, not having unlimited charters or something like that. What would a move towards limited liability? Can you talk about that? Again, it probably seems like quite a, a strange idea, as you say, in, in some respects, because we're just so used to you know limited liability corporations and so forth.
1: Yeah, You would basically say that the shareholders are liable. Um, uh, jointly and severally for all the uh, liabilities the company incurs, including fees charged or et cetera, right? And, and that would basically say uh, you won't hold liable an individual investor for everything, but they're all um, pro rata, basically, depending on how much you have, you will be liable for 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 damages. And, uh, and then if you add something like the shell company's decision, um, if a subsidiary goes belly up, the parent will have to stand up for this as well, then investors will have to make their own decision whether they want to invest in companies that will likely face these kind of liabilities. That would be a much stronger signal than all the green labeling that we're doing.
0: Yes. Now, I, when you're talking about uh, finance and, and the way it's structured and losses socialized, and um, I was just looking at a book by is it William Gutsman, Money Changes Everything. It's this rosy-eyed view that, you know, looking at uh, basically saying, you know, uh, finance has been indispensable to progress. I mean, clearly, you know, the limited liability form has worked in many ways. It has allowed this, uh, you know, new uh, creation of new entities, you know, uh, resurgence, beginning again, and that kind of thing and and in many other ways as well in terms of sharing risk and 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 some of these structures have come out of you know commodity markets and you know farmers and things like that uh, farm you know farming markets as, as such as they were as well
1: you know I think the the underlying assumption of these models was that we can expand forever there are no limits right I think we're understanding now, we might not have understood this in the 19th century, not even most in the 20th century, but I think we're now understanding that it's not limitless. We are in a bounded natural system. So, you know, when you say, you know, you know, finance is, is critical for progress, if you just look at the history and you don't think about the externalities of capitalism, of course, true, uh, we wouldn't have created these amounts of wealth and 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 as much uh, of progress. We not created basically a system that allows private parties to make a lot of money and create new forms of wealth creation all the time. That's what fuels our system. Now, if we didn't have a bounded system, if nature expanded with us in lockstep, we could continue. We would still have issues about, you know, um, inequality and democracy, and we could discuss that, but it wouldn't be as existential as the climate change crisis is for us today.
0: Yeah, yeah. One thing that definitely comes out in your book as well is this idea of malleability and, uh, you know, as you say, it's a code. It can be changed. Um Uh, It seems that the history of corporations and you you, you noted, you know, since the 1970s, but in general has been this increase in legal power uh, that that it's had. Can you talk a little bit about that? Because it's it's had different levels of influence around the world, but been very influential, I suppose, in the power of corporations.
1: Yeah, so I think, um, you know, one thing that has happened is that corporations, you know, corporations, just to be clear, it's a legal creature. They create. They are. You have to create them in law for them to exist. Because we're all of a sudden saying, this legal entity will be treated like a natural person. It owns its own assets. It sues and can be sued in its own name. It contracts in its own name. So we've created this legal fiction that is now around, right? And then we're starting to 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 create um, other things as well. So this legal creature, even if it's Created under one country's so or one jurisdiction's laws, is nowadays recognized as a legal creature with all the w- bells and whistles it wants to have in most other jurisdictions around the world. So most, we have pushed very strongly for you can choose your place of incorporation, come back and say, oh, here yeah, I'm a corporation, okay. That's one thing we have done to make them more powerful, because they can uh, they can procreate, they can create more sub- subsidiaries, they can create more corporations, they can be recognized always, no matter which legal system they use. that of course is the most amenable to them, preferably even in a tax haven, um, and we still recognize it as a as a corporation. And then they can say, you know, when when one of their subsidiaries goes under, uh, we will just cut it cut it loose and 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 shed our um, losses. On top of that, we have created, of course, through the bilateral investment treaties, for example, foreign investor rights against host states to hold the states liable if they adopt any kind of laws that might infringe with their investments. So now they have kind of a property rights against expropriation creation if a country changes, let's say, its environmental laws. And several countries, including Germany, has been sued under the energy charter, which has a bilateral investment treaty kind of framework, because they're imposing um, 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 the countries are imposing carbon um, uh, liabilities on these companies, or are preventing them from performing as earlier. So we have created private rights that allow corporations to basically fend off governments, and the governments attempts attempts to do something for their people. And uh, and we are living with the consequence right now because it's very hard to scale that back. Um, but the corporations all are dependent on the legal system, and the law is. Not a private commodity. The law is a social resource.
0: And if you've got a lot of money, and if you've got a lot of lawyers, and they're working within the system, and you talked about it like this idea of a scaffold and trying to find your way, holes, gaps in the scaffold, and so forth. You know, with enough money and enough uh, uh, legal brains, as it were, they will succeed.
1: I, absolutely. That's you know that's the history I'm I'm, I'm telling. They have succeeded so far. The question is whether we can change it.
0: Right. The uh, SEC, one of the SEC commissioners recently saying great concern about ESG disclosures are a bit technical there. Um, And they're looking at some of the uh, banks, uh, asset uh, asset managers and so forth. uh, A lot of talk about this. Did, Did that surprise you? Have things changed?
1: No, I mean, like I think these incidents sort of suggest, again, so, you know, there's a lot of gaming going on. And, you, you, you know, it's it's just not all in bad faith. You're just trying to make money, as you have always done, right? And so you're trying to classify something as green, if, if, even if it's not totally green, if that is where you can get the next, next margin, That's
0: yeah. Do you think yes? Do you think this is you know you talked about is it the metamorphosis of capital? Is that what Piketty talks about Mm -hmm. in you know particular classes uh, of 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 asset making you know uh, higher returns or or. or, Predominant returns, maybe uh, at particular ages, particular times. There does seem to be just tremendous momentum towards natural capital, natural capital accounts, all these different ways of of, of working with this. Do you sense that the, the you know that the balance might be moving in that direction? Do, do you sense that that investors uh, and, and 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 you know capitalists in general, you know, corporates feel that this could be a very very lucrative area?
1: Obviously, yes, they they do think it's very lucrative, but they also don't want to, you know, take the risk that if it doesn't work out, what we do, we do it then, right? Just re- you know, remember that we've already had decades of trying to, you know, do some green labeling in the airline industry and in others, and and what we find out with hindsight is that all that was um, was gamed. It wasn't really, didn't really reduce emissions. That's what we are. Uh, to we have to really think about how to come to terms with actually doing something, not gaming the next financial returns.
0: Yeah, so we've got the uh, growth in carbon offsets. We've got biodiversity offsets. Um or Carney said.
1: Yeah, but, but what are offsets? Yeah. So you do the same thing that you've always done, then you do a little bit of offset. But what does it mean? Is there enough if, of, of it? I mean, like just there was, an, there was an article in The Guardian yesterday about sort of the you know restructuring of of home heating from oil into um, pellets. Right. So you burn wood instead of oil, where it turns out that doesn't in, reduce emission. But we just did as if because you can regrow trees and nobody looked very closely whether we can regrow trees as fast as we're burning them if we cannot do this then this whole offsetting is a gimmick and governments are subsidizing
0: yes yes and, and now your book has 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 been uh is, is superb and has been uh, had much acclaimed the financial times I think one of their books of the year do, do you think uh, is there a, a um, i won't say a movement but do you feel things are changing
1: they're always changing at the margin. The question is whether they're changing fast enough. So I think it's, you know, I'm, I'm, you know, I feel vindicated, of course, by the fact that many people are reading my book and want to talk me, to me about it. And I think I, I helped open the eyes of some people who were not aware about how this works. Um, uh, but that's sort of the, it's the first step, of course. Diagnosis is always the first step, you know, treatment and effective treatment is, is it's much harder. But without it, we wouldn't get people on board to really think about it in a different way.
0: Yeah. What's next for you now?
1: So, you know, a couple of things. One is sort of to, to uh, write another book that uh, explains sort of the underlying uh, laws of, of capitalist law of ca- capitalism in, a, in a, a sort of more general fashion, but also think, thinking exactly about the issues we discussed today about how we deal with these, uh, the laws of capitalism in light of, light of climate change. Um, and another project deals with uh, with data data is as another asset. So I'm looking basically at the next frontier of the assets that are being fed into a capitalist machine and how it's done in the law, how it's done with technology, which is a different challenge, and what this means for our future.
0: Including natural capital. <laughs> <laughs> I wish you the very best success with your ongoing research, your work, and thank you so much for joining me today on the sustainability agenda.
1: Thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure to talk to you.
0: If you enjoyed this interview, we recommend you check out Fitzcarraldo Editions, an independent publisher specialising in contemporary fiction and long-form essays. Founded in 2014, it focuses on ambitious, imaginative and innovative writing, both in translation and in the English language. Fitzcarraldo Editions publishes, among other authors, 2015 and 2018 Nobel Prize in Literature laureates Svetlana Alexievich and Olga Tukarchuk, vizcarraldoeditions.com Thank you for listening to the Sustainability Agenda podcast. I hope you found it interesting. It would be great if you could leave a review and share the podcast on social media. You can sign up at iTunes to make sure you don't miss any future episodes.